You can also go to hiddenhalf.org. We thought that was a little simpler. After we got the name straight to the heart, we realized telling people that the number two and qualifying it was a little confusing. But uh, I'm glad to be here this morning with you. And I don't know who came up with It's Midnight, but it was a great theme because of the world we're living in, even though they came up with it long before COVID and the riots. And uh, we want to talk about what I call the hidden half of the gospel. It's actually hidden in plain sight in scripture. And we're going to see it's actually part of our doctrinal statement, even though we don't tend to emphasize it, I want to move from the information to application. When I, I graduated from Weimar um, a little over 30 years ago, and then I went to Southern Cal, and I was there as a task force worker for two years, and then my first job was in, they asked me, to, my first full-time job being paid by the conference was in the youth department, because I'd started networking with our youth, with other churches, getting them involved in outreaches, getting kids in the community, coming to our uh, Pathfinder days and summer camps and we were seeing baptisms so they said hey would you come in and train youth leaders in our youth department and it's kind of odd to go from Weimar to Southern California over 30 years ago and do that but the youth director said hey you're doing ministry you're winning souls this is what we want to do so I was really good at getting kids into outreach um, we had a, I don't have time to go into we had all kinds of outreaches going and networking with other churches to include them but a lot of them had brokenness. One girl had been raped by her alcoholic uncle. Uh, kids came from broken homes, rageaholic homes, divorced homes. And I was good at getting them into ministry. I wasn't good at helping them find healing and freedom. So I had a gospel that could get them up on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. and go to a youth prison and sing and clean other people's houses and adopt little kids in our program and go to homeless shelters and youth prisons, but I didn't know how to give them healing and freedom. And so I prayed and I said, God, how do we help these kids get healing and freedom? And he said, let me start with you first. I said, no, I graduated my pastoral ministry degree. I'm good to go. It's in my past. So he had a different opinion. So we argued for three months and then God won. And so my journey into finding the hidden half of the gospel was seeing brokenness in my youth group where I could move them into ministry, but I didn't have, know how to help them find healing and freedom. And, uh, but before we get into that, there are 16 squares there. It's very easy to see, right? But are there only 16 squares? There's 17, kind of hard to miss that one. Uh, there's 21 squares. There's 22 squares, 24 squares, 26 squares, 27 squares, 28, 29, and 30 squares. So the question is, do we have a 16-square gospel or a 30-square gospel? I started ministry loving Jesus, leaving anger, bitterness, alcohol, drugs, a lot of stuff behind. But I didn't, I, I, if you had said, how did God bring you out of that? I couldn't have told you, so I couldn't help the kids. So I had a 16-square gospel to start ministry. And I want to share with you a 30-square gospel. And... Uh, this is going to be a little challenging because I can't read that. But A.T. Jones is um, talking about um, dealing with the roots. And he mentions the roots three times in these statements. Not once, not twice, but three statements over the course of a couple pages. You know why? Because you, if you don't deal with the root, the fruit's going to continue to grow. And is it possible that we could be deceived into bringing our fruit to God but not the fruit and the root? Because Jesus was tempted like us in how many ways? Almost every way? Every way. And people confuse sometimes temptation with sin. And if you read the lessons on faith, the 1888 uh, materials, 
Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4 is all over it. It's immersed in it. You read Prescott, you read Ellen White. It's immersed that Jesus was made like us in every way, suffered being tempted like us in every way, and he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. So the Bible always protects his sinlessness. He was made, to, he who knew no sin was made to what? Be sin. So the Bible's always protecting Jesus' uh, sinlessness. So we have to separate the fact that he was tempted with the same thoughts we have that lead to sin, but he never gave in to them. So we always need to make that clear. But this is immersed in the 1888 message. I really can read a few pages without hitting this message. That he took on our flesh, he took on humanity, he overcame sin by trusting his father, not in his own strength, but by trusting his father. So we can either uh, end up trying harder in our own strength, in our own sincerity, trying to do what Jesus said is impossible to do because he said it's impossible in our own strength, it's only possible with God. Or we can be receiving Jesus' finished work and his Father. And the word receive is in the New Testament, in the King James, only 257 times. Only 257 times. Other than that, it's a minor theme in the New Testament. So, and what does A.T. Jones say? He says, stop trying and start receiving. If you want the good works of Jesus in you, then you have to let Jesus live in you with those good works. I can be sincerely trying to be a better person, be a better Boy Scout, Girl Scout this week, or I can receive the finished work of Jesus. If I'm struggling with hope, I need to receive his hope and his faith and his trust in his Father that he developed going through the most horrendous trials anybody could go through. And if I spend my life trying to believe more, who's the power source? I am. And people say, but what if I'm sincere? Peter here when he said, I will uh, go to prison for you, and I will die for you. Was he sincere? Yes. Did he love Jesus? Yes. A few hours later, was he sincerely and publicly and spectacularly wrong? So my love for Jesus and I, my sincerity in following him could lead me to be sincerely and publicly and spectacularly wrong. How many of you have that on your bucket list? I don't. So we have to look at all of Scripture in context. We have to deal with those negative thoughts. Because... Peter had a problem. He looked at Jesus as a militant Messiah, right? So he was going, to, what he meant was, I will fight to the death for you taking on the Romans as the militant Messiah. That's what he meant. That's why he rejected the message of the cross. Because when the cross calls for death to Jesus and death to self, that's a lot different than what? Jesus dying for the sins of the Jews and the Romans and everybody else. So, spend our life trying harder to do receive the finished work of Jesus. That's righteousness by faith at the practical level. Now, that's easier said than done. I spend my life learning how to receive the finished work of Jesus than trying harder to do what me to do. And I actually believe the devil's greatest deception is to get me to try and do God's part that God already did 2,000 years ago. So our straight to the heart discipleship ministry is multiplying disciples who are receiving Jesus' victory over the devil's greatest temptation to try and do God's part that God already did 2,000 years ago in Christ. And he's got a lot of sincere Christians trying harder, carrying guilt and shame and losing hope. Why? Because they're trying to do God's part that he's already done. So here's the hidden half of the gospel. Jesus is born to an unwed mother. 
Jesus is a refugee, has to leave Israel, go to Egypt. What's the biggest political hot potato in the world today, or has been for many years? What do you do with illegal immigrants? Jesus was an illegal immigrant. He was a refugee. It's what do we do with the refugees? He's unsafe. Fast forward to the last thoughtful hour, spending a thoughtful hour in the closing scenes of Jesus' life. What do we have? Jesus is alone and abandoned by his disciples in his time of need when he says, I need you to be there with me. Jesus is betrayed by Judas by a kiss. All of his disciples leave. Peter denies him twice and curses him. He's physically, verbally, mentally abused by those in power over him who should have protected him. He's experiencing racial, religious, and political prejudice at every step of the way. He's rejected by loved ones and he's tempted to numb his pain. He's on the cross, uh, which is by the way, behind every addiction, legal or illegal, is numbing our pain. Jesus was tempted to check out emotionally. And he's rejected, he's tempted to believe he's rejected, and he turns scripture into prayer, Psalm 22, 1, into prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people wonder if he's doubting God's love. Look at his last words, he's turning scripture into prayer. Is that faith or lack of faith? That's faith. And then what are his last words? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Our ministry is taking scripture, turning it into prayer, connecting Jesus' story with our story, so we're following the model of Jesus Christ on the cross in his deepest, darkest moment. So why did he suffer like this? Because he said the Son of Man might have to suffer? No, he said he has to suffer, he must suffer. He I can identify with this, relate to us. If I work with somebody who's been uh, rejected, Jesus was rejected by loved ones, wasn't he? If somebody was physically abused, sexually abused, verbally abused, and all this stuff is in our church, I have a rubber meets the road savior who walked in their shoes, who can heal them and set them free. If he died for our sins and didn't suffer, guess what? He wouldn't earn the right to heal us because he wouldn't have been made like us in every way. He wouldn't have been tempted like us in every way. And the devil would say, you can't help Paul after growing up in an abusive home because you weren't abused. So Jesus had to go through this. This is why scripture says that he must suffer. Okay, and if you look at who included suffering in the plan of salvation in the gospel, Jesus, uh, he points to all the Old Testament writers because he tells the disciples it, everything in the law of Moses, Psalms, and the prophets had to be fulfilled. He's referencing the Old Testament, their Bible, and he says everything points to my suffering. And guess who... What kind of a gospel did the disciples have after Pentecost? Not before, but after. This is the Christ who must suffer. A few verses later, fulfill all the prophets. You know, where did they get that? Jesus is saying, I had to fulfill everything in the Old Testament, fulfill the Old Testament prophets about my suffering. So the, the Pentecost gospel is that Jesus suffered, died, and rose from the dead, not died and rose from the dead. Which is important because the writer of Hebrews says he was... He had to suffer being tempted, made like us in every way. Suffered, tempted in how many points? All points, no exceptions. Obviously in principle, but uh, there is. So now we have the writer of Hebrews as well. And then, gospel number nine, in Christ's life of perfect obedience to God's will, his suffering, death, and resurrection, God provides the only means of atonement for human sin. If you want to be right with God, you have to receive the whole gospel, including the hidden half of the gospel, of his suffering, death, and resurrection, not just his death and resurrection. If you get forgiven and you don't get healed, you're going to still have struggles. 
I want to say that again. If you're forgiven and you're never healed and set free, you don't get to Luke 4:18 gospel of healing the brokenhearted and setting the captives free. And what happens to our hope if we sit in a pew for 40 years hoping against hope that someday, maybe next week, we'll get free? It's going to go down, not up. So now we have our SDA belief. And then guess what? Spirit of prophecy says the law of God stands vindicated by the suffering and death of the only begotten son of the infinite God. And she has hundreds and hundreds of references. You can't read Desire of Ages without running into the suffering of Christ. It's impossible. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of references. So we only have Jesus, all the apostles, all the New Testament writers, all the Old Testament writers, our statement of belief number nine and spirit of prophecy. Other than that, I'm out on a limb this morning. Okay? That's a pretty rock solid foundation for including Jesus' suffering. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but in our church and our community, not just our community, do we have addictions like pornography, food, anger, and religion? And in today's circles, we would include racism. You can include a lot of risk. Do we have physical, sexual, verbal, and mental, and even religious abuse in Christianity today? Yes, we do. Uh, do we have losses like an abuse? Yes. Do we have all kinds of losses? What if we had a gospel that actually spoke into the brokenness of this. Would that be evangelistic if we could have a gospel that would speak into it? By the way, Spirit of Prophecy says, my work behind the pulpit is the beginning of my ministry. It's what happens after I speak that really makes a difference. So if I only have a speaking ministry, am I really following Jesus' model? No, I'm not. So what I'm doing up here is the beginning of my ministry according to Spirit of Prophecy, and she gets that from uh, Jesus' model of ministry. So what if we had a gospel that actually spoke into brokenness and offered healing and freedom? So we have, we're alone, abandoned, betrayed, abused, we go through negative experiences, and we get negative messages, don't we? If your father is an alcoholic and he beats you and leaves, do you get rejection abandonment issues? Of course you do. You get messages, I'm not loved, I'm rejected, I'm abandoned. Guess what? Jesus went through every experience you went through in principle, so he could be tempted like you, made like you in every way, and you can receive his healing, his freedom, and his victory. And I'm telling you, it's a lot more rewarding to spend receiving his finished work. In if you've been rejected, you can try and tell yourself you're accepted. But who's the power source? I am. How about this language? It's biblical. I receive Jesus' acceptance in place of rejection. Now who's the power source if I'm receiving his acceptance based on his finished work? Who's the power source? Because in every church I've ever been doing a training, I hear these words. I just need to forgive myself. I've got a couple of questions for you. Who's the center of that statement? It's been in 100% of the churches I've done trainings. I am. Who's completely missing from that? Jesus is. God is. And by the way, he forgave us 2,000 years ago, so we're back into the trap of trying to do what God already did. That's a setup for failure. Nobody in the Bible, did Moses say, I forgive myself for being a murderer? Or did he say, God's a forgiving God? Did David say, I forgave myself for murdering Uriah? No. Nobody in the Bible said that. So we have language in the church that sets us up for failure and self-works. Instead of receiving the finished work of Christ, receiving his forgiveness, receiving his acceptance. If I have a belief I'm not good enough, and many people do, I can try and tell myself I'm good enough or I can receive the goodness of God. Which one is going to lead me to the throne of grace? And the language clearly me is clear that the power source is God. We, the, what does the Bible say, by the way, about words? Words have the power of death and life. I wish Proverbs 18.21 would have said life first. It says death first. 
are we speaking words of death or life? Saying I just need to forgive myself is speaking words of death. It's impossible to do. It was already done because we can't do it in our own strength. So we need to make sure that our language is biblical. And we have a Jesus who took all the ways we we've gotten an identity that we're bad, we're not good enough, we're rejected. I work with abuse victim victims every week. They believe that it's their fault, they're bad, dirty, and impure because of what other people did to them. We know that's not true. I can try and talk them out of it. Is that going to work? No, because as they believe in their heart, so are they. But can I say, can I take their negative thoughts, connect them with Jesus' negative experiences where he was tempted, turn that into a prayer, and start receiving the goodness of God and the purity of God? That I can do, and I can walk with them week after week. And as they get healing and freedom, they share with others. And I'm going to share one testimony later. But we want to be clear that Jesus was tempted with our thoughts. He did not give in. I grew up with anger with, and a home filled with anger and abuse. I learned to believe I'm bad, I'm not good enough, and I'm rejected. Then I have feelings of anger about that and turn to drinking and drugs and porn and anything else I can do to medicate my pain. Jesus went through abuse. He was tempted to have thoughts of anger, self-righteous anger, but did he give in to them? But was he abused every way possible? Yes. So was he, did the devil have pity on him during his trials? Or did he tempt him to have the same thoughts I did? The difference between me and Jesus is that he didn't have those thoughts, so he can not only forgive me, he can heal me and set me free. That's the Luke 4.18 gospel. Okay? So we want to be clear that he was tempted yet without sin. He went through our negative experiences. He was tempted with our negative thoughts. He didn't give in to them. He trusted his father. So when people say, I have no hope, I say, great, would you take your mustard seed and pray with me and receive the faith, hope, and trust that Jesus developed during his trials, during his darkest hours. So we're receiving his finished work. If you want to be theological, that's righteousness by faith praying at the practical level. Now, when you, if I were to cut a lemon, what would happen in your mouth and I start eating it? It would start puckering. Why? Because thoughts create chemical reactions and then your mouth reacts, right? This is neuroscience 101. If we know this, can the devil figure this out? By the way, science is catching up with Genesis, Jesus, and Paul and spirit of prophecy when they're saying thoughts create feelings and feelings create behavior. They're catching up. Isn't that good news that they're catching up with the Bible? Okay. So, which is going to be more effective? If the devil shows up in red pajamas, what do we do with people when they show up in red pajamas out in public? We refer them to a psychological unit. But he shows up in red pajamas, pitchfork, horns in his head and tail, and says, you're stupid and you're not good enough. Now, you, whether you believe it or not, you know you have a dialogue. So is that effective? Or is it more effective for Satan to show up and whisper I messages in first-person language? So I go through a negative experience, I get rejected. Then I get a thought, I feel pain, and I get a thought, I'm rejected. It's not my thought, it's his thought. And what's his name in the Bible? Deceiver and accuser. So I work with abuse victims all the time who have been deceived into believing lies, and they're believing his accusations that they're at fault. You and I know they're not at fault. Little five-year-old girls who are abused, it's not their fault. That's what they believe. So we want to take their thoughts, connect them with Jesus' negative experiences, turn it into a prayer, and start discipling them. 
By the way, Satan's so good at lying, he deceived a third of the angels in heaven in a perfect environment, and he deceived Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. We have to admit he's good at what he does. We don't like it, but he's good at what he does. So, why do we live in a cycle of what I call sin and forgiveness? Because we bring our fruit to God without the root. Remember what A.T. Jones kept referring? The root, the root, the root. Jesus destroyed sin at the fruit, yes, and the root. And the root. So why do I confess my sin and return to it or switch it? Could I go from being an alcoholic to a workaholic and call that victory? Sure, but I've just switched fruit. I'm still disconnecting from my pain. See, what we don't realize is that we have negative messages from the father of lies. The father of what? Lies, who has whispered negative thoughts in first-person language, so I believe they're my thoughts. Now he has a seed that grows into a root, and then I spend my life fighting the fruit. And here's the sneaky part of it. I should confess my anger, alcohol, etc., right? But I, he's got me and millions of Christians confessing our fruit without the root. So he keeps his power source, which means I live in a cycle of sin and forgiveness. And uh, let me, I'm going to have to go over here just to see it. Jesus never with a thought cherished or, or desired or sanctioned uh, any, any lies from Satan, right? Never. So he's killing it at the root. Again, killed at the root to prevent from appearing in the life. If you're going to get freedom, we have to deal with the root and the, and the fruit. We have to. And the good news is we have a Savior who already killed it at the root so we can receive his goodness, his forgiveness, his he healing, his righteousness. Let's go to this one. And thus by divine power, in other words, God, Jesus trusted in his Father. He received faith in God in our flesh, in, he in our flesh utterly quenched every inclination of that flesh and he effectively killed it at its root every desire of the flesh and so condemned sin in the flesh and in so doing he brought how much victory complete victory and divine power to maintain it to every soul in the world yet not a single tendency or inclination of the flesh was ever allowed the slightest recognition even in thought but every one of them was effectually killed at the root by the power of God, which through divine faith he brought to humanity. This he overcame it, and he has the power to maintain it. He gained victory, so now we can receive victory and receive the maintenance of that victory. This is a full service, rubber meets the road savior. This is the hidden half of the gospel. Now here's a cycle. Let's say somebody in the church, they have a health message, and they have a negative thought they're alone and they, she gets married and uh, the guy's not cheating on her he's not looking at pornography he's not a workaholic he's there but her belief system her identity is I'm alone is that going to create positive feelings or negative feelings he's not doing anything wrong he's not perfect but he's not doing anything wrong so she's gonna have negative feelings does she want to be present with those negative feelings or does she want to escape them she wants to escape him. So she turns to her favorite mango ice cream. I know, I've just gone from preaching to meddling. This is too practical. Okay, now, while she's eating it, is she going to feel good or bad? She's going to feel good. So she's gone from feeling bad to feeling good, right? But she knows about the health message. She wants to follow the health message. She's like Peter at the Last Supper, very sincere, loves Jesus, doesn't know about the root system, doesn't know about the lies. So, 
she's eating it. But afterwards, does the devil leave her alone or does he hit her with more guilt, shame, and condemnation? Of course, he hits her with more guilt and shame. So she goes from feeling bad to feeling good to feeling worse or numb. This is the addiction cycle at the simplest level that I can show it. Ellen White says we should teach in a way that's so simple even children can understand. Can children understand this? Yes, they can. That's the test. It's not how, I, how many fancy words I use, it's can people understand it? Okay? So, now she's feeling bad, so you know what she's going to do to feel good? She's going to go back to food. So she's going to do this cycle of feeling bad to feeling good, and she's sitting in the pews for 30 years. Then she has waking, now she's embarrassed because she can't hide it. Now she has a habit, she has a trained thought pattern, I feel bad, I'm going to comfort it with my favorite ice cream. And she doesn't want to do it. She's the Roman 7 person, right? Not that any of you can identify with that, I know. None of us have ever lived here, right? I'm doing what I don't want to do. So if we were going to help her, would we tell her that ice cream and sugar is bad for you and it's going to cause diabetes and it's going to make you feel bad? Or does she already know that? She already knows that. So we're going to tell her what she already knows, right? We're going to tell her, if you had more faith, if you were really surrendered to God, if you were really serious, that's really going to encourage her and want to come back to church, right? No, but that's what they get in church. You know what? If we want to help her, we want to say, of course, this is where you are. Let's look at what your negative thoughts are. Let's deal with that being alone. And by the way, does Jesus just happen to have a prophecy about trotting the wine press alone? Do we have a savior who knows what it's like to be alone and to be tempted to check out on the cross? You can't get lonelier than where he was. This Jesus is tempted like her in all ways, more ways, got the victory. She can get healing, freedom, and forgiveness. We need forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness without freedom ends up living in a cycle of sin and forgiveness. And they are not going to share that gospel. They're not going to say, come and sit with me for 30 years in church on a church pew and live in a cycle of sin and forgiveness. This is the good news. But if she gets healing and freedom, you're not going to be able to stop her. She's going to be the woman at the well. We're in an online training now because of COVID. We have people in Malaysia, Thailand, India, Hong Kong, Australia on it. And people are writing in testimonies of the healing and freedom they're getting. And they're, wanting, they're saying, can we share this with others? No, don't share it with others. Keep it to yourself, right? If you experience the good news, you know what you want to do? You want to share the good news. If you're a grandmother, does somebody have to take you through a 12-week witnessing course at church to get you to share the good news? No, because it's good news. But share the gospel was supposed to be the best news ever, and we struggle to share it. If we experience it, we'll share it. Now, uh, we want to look at, Ellen White talks about the fact that in the training of his disciples, the example of the Savior's life was far more effective than any mere doctrinal instruction. Whoa. Could I be teaching doctrine without Jesus? Unintentionally, sincerely? Could I be giving them theological information that's 100% correct without showing them how to get healing and freedom? Yeah, that's how I started my ministry. That was the best thing that it could have happened to me was to have a youth group where they had all kinds of brokenness. They weren't hiding it. As adults, we kind of, we're better at hiding it. The kids weren't hiding They didn't know how to hide it yet. Give them a couple years, and they'll be hiding it too. The best thing that could have happened to me was to be smack dab in the middle of 20 kids where they couldn't hide their brokenness. And it confronted me that fact that I had a 16-square gospel. I did not have a gospel that healed people and set them free. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. So the question is, do we do more preaching or do we more teaching? 
we do more preaching and teaching. And I ask people, uh, what's the percentage? They say about 90% teaching and preaching, 10% healing. What if we had a Luke 4.18 gospel to heal Pete and set the captives free? Would that be good news to share? Would that help uh, people know that there's a gospel that makes a difference, a gospel for the whole person? Now, I want to share about Sandy. She was not a Christian. Uh, this happened about 15 years ago. I trained somebody when I was training at AFCO. He went back to England. I never prayed with her, so it can't be about me. It has to be about biblical principles and Jesus' story, because I never prayed with her. I've been in England training with her. She was not a Christian when George started praying with her. And people say, how can you pray with non-Christians? Well, Jesus healed a lame man, and he didn't know who Jesus was till after he got healed. Jesus heals the blind man. He doesn't know who Jesus is till after he got healed. Jesus raised a dead girl. How much did the dead girl know before she got healed? Nothing. So if Jesus can run around with extravagant grace, healing people before they know who he is, and then they get a chance to decide to accept him or not, can we pray with people who don't know Jesus? So if that's true, based on Jesus' model of ministry, do our evangelistic opportunities go up or down? They just explode, if they're open. If they're not, then we honor their no. But, but Sandy is not a Christian. She doesn't believe in Jesus as a Lord and Savior. She does not believe in the Trinity. Um, but she's been beaten and abused growing up. And then surprise, surprise, guess what kind of a guy she marries? An abusive guy. And she spends 17 years in an abusive marriage. Going to the hospital, broken ribs, the cop's coming, he hides her key so she can't get out. She's got 17 years as an adult that's a repeat of growing up. She doesn't really want to accept Jesus, but she happens to have brokenness and belief, negative beliefs about herself. And she's going to gravitate towards someone who reaffirms those beliefs. I'm not saying we like it, it's just as, as Sandy believes in her heart, so is she. If she believes she's bad and she deserves it, you know what kind of a guy she's going to find? Try and talk her out of it. It won't work. It won't work. Because you have to reach the heart. Jesus was God, is God. He worked with the disciples for days, weeks, months, and years, and they were able to reject his message of the cross up to the Last Supper. Why? Because their belief in their heart was looking for a militant Messiah. A militant Messiah. So they interpreted everything through their filter, a Messiah who would overpower Rome. And if we're with the disciples and we have that same belief, we would do exactly what they did. Because we would see him heal thousands, cast out thousands of demons, raise people from the dead, and what would we say? We're looking for somebody with power. I see this power. He gives me some of that power. We finally have the guy with the power to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus is saying, no, I came to die for you and the Romans. It was so shocking, they couldn't hear it. It took the cross. How many of us have to have a crash and burn with a false belief like the disciples before we're open to the grace of God? Not just once, but many times in our walk with him. So Sandy had learned she's beaten, bruised, and bloodied by those who should have been protecting her. So what do you think is in Jesus' story? He's beaten, bruised, and bloodied by those who should have been protecting him. Is this a side-by-side -side savior for Sandy? Remember, she doesn't believe in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. She learns to, she's falsely accused, verbally, and physically abused. So what's in Jesus' side-by-side -side story? The same thing. He's being made like her in every way, tempted like her in every way. She believes she's worthless, alone, and deserves the abuse. So she finds somebody. And if she gets out of this marriage without dealing with the abuse, what kind of a guy is she going to find? 
somebody else. Because not only did she grow up with these beliefs, she's got 17 years of the enemy reinforcing these beliefs, etc. So Jesus is tempted to believe he's worthless, he's tempted to believe he's alone, and he's tempted to, he believes he deserves all this, yet without what? Okay, this is practical. This isn't just theological. This is a practical rubber-meets-the-road savior, which means we have a gospel to offer abuse victims that could make a difference. She's denying her pain and shame, trying to bury it, defining herself by her abuse. What does Jesus do? He steps into her story fully and completely. He's tempted to deny his pain, but he trusts in his father. He's tempted to believe that his identity is being abused every way possible, but he trusts in his father. He's building hope, faith, and trust during these times so I can receive his faith, hope, and trust as I go through trials. Now this is a prayer where we're connecting Jesus' story with Sandy's story, root and fruit. Because again, the devil has deceived millions upon millions of Christians of bringing only our fruit. And here's the tricky part. Here's the seductive part. I should bring my bad fruit, shouldn't I? But if I only bring the fruit and the devil's got the root system in my heart, guess what that tree's gonna reproduce? So we need to move from the bad tree to the tree of Calvary, back to the tree of life. So here's the prayer, and this is a sample prayer that George is praying with her. And dear God, thank you for having Jesus fulfill specific prophecies when he was physically, verbally, and mentally abused so he could take all of my abuse his cross into his suffering and death on the cross, that's Jesus' story, with all of my negative thoughts that I'm alone, I'm worthless, and I don't deserve any better. And raising Jesus from the dead, so now we're in the resurrection part, to heal me and set me free to receive, to receive, to receive my truest, deepest identity as your daughter with healthy boundaries. Now George met with her a couple times, didn't see her for a couple of weeks. He's praying Jesus' story into her story. And you need a degree in psychology to do this, don't you? You need a degree in psychiatry at least, don't you? you, need a, you don't you need a, a doctorate in theology to do this? No, you're telling us, you're listening to their story, connecting with Jesus' story, and praying Jesus' story into their story. This is a story ministry. It's very practical, very personal, very spiritual. And so, George prayed with her for a couple of weeks, didn't see her, and uh, he, uh, and she goes, I got it. I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and the Trinity makes sense. Now, none of her friends are Christian. George didn't lead her through a prayer of salvation. So who led her into salvation? There's no Christians in her life but George. It wasn't George. So who did this? Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is healing her. And as he heals her heart, guess what? Sneaky Jesus is sneaking into her heart. Now she believes... Jesus is her Lord and Savior, and she believes in the Trinity. This is like 15 years ago or more. Maybe we need to have her teach us today, because a lot of people are getting off on that wrong theology. How did the Holy Spirit do that? Because we connected Jesus' story with her story. And we wanted to have healthy boundaries, too. We don't want to uh, have her marry somebody else uh, who's going to treat her the same way. We want her identity to change. We want her to know that her identity is being fully known and fully loved by the God of the universe. That he's gone through her abuse. He's taken it all, all the guilt, all the shame, all the anger, and he's healed her and set her free. 
Now she has conversations with her kids so that they don't have to follow in the same path she did. So there's collateral blessings, not collateral damage, but collateral blessings. She, uh, she was, to use a word we would understand, she's shepherding a deaf group at the time. Guess where that deaf group is today? They're at the church with her. Why? Because when you experience the good news, you share the good news. If you don't experience the good news, you don't share the good news. I asked a friend of mine once, what do you think would move people into ministry the most, members? He said, training. I'm a trainer. I disciple. I do trainings. It's my full-time job, so I'm not against training. But the purpose of the training is to get people healing and freedom so they can move into ministry. You move people into ministry, you get them to serve a nominating committee, etc., without healing and freedom, they will do it, but are they going to do it well? It's out of obligation, not motivation or devotion to God. Her, her motivation is devotion to God. And remember, I've never prayed with her, so it can't be me. It has to be Jesus at a very practical level. And I went over there years ago. I'm doing a training. A pastor comes up and says, hey, Sandy is a member of my church. She came in and helped us be more relational. Maybe she needed an Adventist, and maybe, the Ad maybe we needed Sandy. Maybe it's a win-win. Maybe we're not better than her. Maybe we need her. And uh, 15 years later, she's still leading other people to Christ. I know because I'm in communication with her on a regular basis. Okay? This is good fruit. This is bearing fruit, much fruit that remains. I don't want to bear fruit that walks away in six months or a year. I want to bear much fruit that remains. But you know what that means? I've got to invest quality time. Do you get this in a 30-second prayer? Is that what Jesus did? Came from heaven, did a 30-second prayer with his disciples and went back up? No, he spent time. So I'm going to come up again. What I do here behind the pulpit is the beginning of my ministry. So if somebody says they're the preaching pastor, they've missed the message of what, they've missed what ministry is about. Preaching and teaching is the beginning. So 15 years later, act at least, she's still in the church. She's still active. She's still leading people to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus made a difference. He came into her brokenness. What did Jesus say? I came to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. And he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. I'm here and I'm fulfilling it. So again, you have a choice. You can try to gain victory in your own strength, that your own sincerity. You can try to do what Jesus said is impossible to do. Give Jesus victory. His faith 2,000 years ago in the past. And again, only 257 times uh, is the word receive mentioned. Other than that, it's a very minor theme. Is the, is the scripture trying to get our attention about righteousness by faith? God's end time people are not going to be trying harder. They're going to be investing their energy receiving his healing, receiving his freedom, his righteousness, his purity, his peace. They're going to be receiving his hope, trust, and faith. When we forgive others, we can try in our own strength, or we can receive the forgiveness that Jesus provided how long ago? 2,000 years ago. Whose forgiveness is stronger and deeper? Me trying to forgive somebody who's hurt me deeply? or letting God heal my heart first so I can receive his forgiveness for everything they did and did not know. I'm quoting Jesus on the cross. And on the cross, what did Jesus do? Turn scripture into prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I'm thinking that's a really good thing to turn scriptures into prayer. 
and bring Jesus' story into my story. So we have to make a decision. Am I going to live the Christian life or try to in my own strength where I'm the power source? And even if I'm sincere, I'm still sincerely wrong and I'm deceived, aren't I? And guess what happens when I don't get the victory? I start pointing the finger elsewhere. You ever have people in church where they can tell everybody else's sins? I guarantee you they have unresolved sin in their life. They tried legalistically to get over it, maybe sincerely, but still legalistically in their own strength, and then they start turning the finger outward. Or we can trust in our Savior as our power source, we can trust in God in our power source, and actually receive the finished work of Christ. Only one of them will bring peace, freedom, and righteousness, and growth in God's grace and truth. And again, I'm going to say this. The devil has deceived Christians into sincerely trying to do God's part that God has already done. I cannot compete with or improve upon the finished work of Christ. Peter was trying to do that. Now, what difference does it make to see how Jesus suffered so much abuse, rejection, betrayal, and identify with this? What's the difference between um, trying harder versus receiving? Is there, is there still a choice on my part to come into God's presence and say I've got anger and bitterness? Is that still a choice? Yeah, so I'm choosing with my will, right? Am I still choosing to say, God, what are my negative thoughts behind my anger and bitterness? Yes. Am I still choosing to look in Jesus' story where he can identify with me? Yes. Am I choosing to turn it into a prayer? Yes. So actually, more of my willpower, more of my choice is involved in this process, not less. It actually involves more on my part, it costs me more, and I get more blessings. Why? Because I'm bringing the fruit and the root to God. And by the way, in scripture, is Jesus called the root? He's the root of Jesse, right? The root of David. He's actually called the root. He destroyed sin at its root, fruit and root, but at its sin. He took that carnal nature to death on the cross. So we want to have people rooted and grounded in God's love. What does Colossians say? Two, as you received Christ, there's one of those 257 times the word receive is used, as you receive Christ, continue in him or walk in him, being rooted and grounded in his love, overflowing with thanks. You can't have thanks just by trying to be thankful. You have to be rooted and grounded in him. And when I first accepted Christ, I depended on his power, his life story, not mine, right? So Paul is saying, just as I began my Christian walk depending on him with a conversation and prayer, guess what I should be doing? Continuing my walk depending on him in prayer so that I'm rooted and grounded in Jesus' love, in Christ's love, so I'm overflowing with thanks. It's very, very consistent. And if I were to make uh, justification and sanctification as simple as possible, I would say I'm justified in my first conversation with God where I trust him with my life. It's a conversation with God, right? In, in our word, Christian word, we'd use prayer, but it's a conversation. If that's true, then you know what sanctification is? My ongoing conversation with Christ. Now, you can argue, you can get theological debates about sanctification. I think I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. And Paul just happened to tell us what? That we take almost every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Isn't that what it says? I just deceived you, and some of you are shaking your head. I said almost every thought. 
See, you're trusting me because I'm behind the pulpit. When I'm trainings, I constantly misquote scripture in big, bold, hundred font size, and people nod because I'm behind the pulpit. Don't trust me, trust the word. Check everything I say against the word. Third time I do this, people go, you know, we don't trust you anymore. Great, now we have an agreement. You're gonna trust what I say. You're not gonna trust what I say. You're gonna compare it with God's word. Paul says, take every thought captive. Not almost every thought, but my most painful thoughts. Not every thought, but the one where I don't want to forgive the person who hurt me. Not every thought, but my worst thoughts about myself because of my sins. Every thought means how many thoughts? Every thought. And by the way, in the King James, it's to the obedience of Christ. Whose obedience? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And if you go to Romans 5.19, what do you find? Through the obedience of how many people? One, how many were made righteous? So the question is, whose obedience is better? Should I be trying to obey or receive healing and freedom with the obedience of Christ? Whose obedience is better? Maybe I should be receiving his obedience so he's living in me and through me. Prescott talks about you know, the fact that we can't keep the commandments, and I agree with him. Sometimes we say, I don't keep the commandments to be saved because I'm saved. But you know what? Look at the language. I'm still doing it. Prescott nails it. I'm going to share it in another presentation where he talks about it. We can't keep the commandments, but there is a commandment keeper. There is somebody who already kept the commandments. And you know what he wants to do? Keep the commandments in me. Which is better, me trying to keep the commandments or receiving the one who kept the commandments of God's law of love in me and through me. So I'm suggesting that based on scripture in Romans 5.19 and 2 Corinthians 10.5 that it's his obedience, not my obedience. It's Jesus living in me with the obedience he already developed how many years ago? 2,000 years ago. The devil wants me to try and do God's part by obeying out of sincerity, but you know what happens when I do that? I live in a cycle of sin and forgiveness. And after I do that for a year, two, or three, guess what happens to my hope? It starts going down, 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 down. I'm suggesting we need to give the whole gospel for the whole person, fruit and root, and then we need to be committed to investing quality time in them. Desire of Ages says that Jesus, most of his time was spent in one-on-one, -on -one, she calls them interviews. Not preaching and teaching, he did that. And we have those stories, but she says he spent most of his time and didn't necessarily see fruit right then, but later it sowed seeds that spread the gospel to thousands. Am I following in ministry like Jesus did? Do I value one-on-one -on -one time with people? What if I have to spend a month with them? What if I have to spend once a week or twice a week for a month or two months or three months? Is that too much to take a deeply uh, damaged abuse victim into freedom in Christ who's now gonna share the gospel with others? Is that too much time for Sandy? Do we have that kind of time? Because I've asked when I do trainings, is your church safe? And I define safety by, do you have one or two people you can share your struggles with this week who won't judge you, tell you to try harder and pray more, but they'll listen to you and pray? You know what people say 99% of the time? No, I can't share my struggles at church. So if the church isn't safe, don't expect God to bring people from the community to a place that's not safe. Don't expect it. We have to create safety in groups, small groups, so that we can listen to each other and then bring them into God's throne of grace. How hard would it be if someone shared with you this week 
at church and you say, you know, I don't know what to do, but let's go into this room. Let's pray. What does God want you to know right now? What, how does he want to minister to you and bring his healing? You have to have a, a degree in the, doctorate in theology to do that, don't you? I mean, this is really in, incredibly difficult, complex stuff to understand, right? You have to do that to turn Psalm 139 into a prayer. God search their heart. What are their negative thoughts? That, you have to go to school for 12 years to do that, right? No, you don't. You don't. It's simple. But the problem is, it's not our modeling in Western culture. And, because we have a very performance-oriented uh, culture, don't we? It's only in the world, not in the church, right? We don't struggle with performance in the church, do we? It's just out on the streets. Yeah. We often come to church. You know what we do? We show people the masks, not the COVID masks, the masks. I'm going to tell you what I think you want to hear. I'm going to show you the face that you want to face, even if I'm hurting and broken on the inside. So I'm suggesting that our churches could be safe if we would learn to listen to people without counseling them, without trying to fix them, and simply saying, God, what are their anxious thoughts? That's just turning Psalm 139, 23 and 24 into prayer. And what's the purpose of that prayer? To lead them in the everlasting way. You want them to get free? You want them to be in the everlasting way? Maybe we could turn that into a prayer. So I'm suggesting that if church becomes safe, God can bring people. He's probably not going to bring people if they're going to get fixed and judged. It's not. So I'm suggesting what's it like to have a 30-square gospel? That means that when Sandy, someone like Sandy comes to me, I don't have to have the solution, do I? I just have to help her identify negative thoughts. We just have to have a prayer with negative thoughts in the left column and Jesus' negative experiences in the right column. We just happen to have that so they can look at it, check off a couple negative thoughts. We ask them to read scripture and they tell us what the scripture means. We don't tell them. By the way, non-Christians I prayed with can tell me what Isaiah 53 means. How can they do that? Because God's word is alive. I don't even need to preach to them. The Holy Spirit speaks to them. They can tell me. And then we have them check a couple of thoughts in Jesus' story, and we turn it into a prayer. We start praying, and we see changes we can't bring them, we can't take credit for. And here's the good news about me not taking credit. I can train George. He can go back to England, pray with Sandy. Sandy can get healing and start taking it to others. And I've never prayed with her. I can be coaching somebody in Southern Cal to pray with somebody in Australia who's helping somebody get free in Hong Kong. I know because we're doing it on Zoom right now or uh, audio. And then they can take it to others. I don't have to travel. I don't have to change time zones. Because we listen to the person's story without fixing. We share Jesus' story. And then we pray Jesus' story into the person's story. That's what we do week after week. And I have to tell you, it's time-consuming at times. You're walking with them. You're helping them grow. There is a cost of time. It's not money. It's time. Is it worth the time for me to train George? And is it worth the time for George to disciple um, Sandy? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I don't know any other way. In fact, I look at Jesus' life. And we're told that he spent most of his time in one-on-one -on -one interviews. It looks like we have a model for ministry. Quality time with a few people. And then we also have, um, you know, larger gatherings, teachings like Jesus did. It's not either or, it's both and. But most of his time was spent behind the scenes with a very practical Christianity. So we're taking our suffering, sin, and lies to the cross. We identify with Christ, suffering in his story. 
We receive Christ's healing and freedom. We receive his forgiveness. We move into ministry with a testimony. And this is what I call the whole gospel for the whole person going to the whole world. Is it enough if I give half the gospel to the whole world in every language? Is it enough if I give the information about the whole gospel, but I never invest in discipleship in the Great Commission? Is that enough? Will information alone change people? No, it's not going to. Jesus modeled an incarnational ministry. So I have to have an incarnational ministry. It begins with Jesus living in me and through me. But the good thing is, I never have to have the answer. I don't have to fix them, because I can't heal them. But can I bring them into the presence of the healer? Can I bring Sandy's wounded heart into the presence of the wounded healer? I can do that. George can do that. And by the way, what happens to George's faith when Sandy gets healed and gets saved? It's not just for Sandy, it's for him. Then she comes to the church, starts bringing other people to church, and brings a more relational element into the church. So George blesses her, she blesses George. So this is a win-win situation. Uh, this afternoon, we're going to be talking about it's time for the judgment message to be the most powerful, positive message we have. And if we're going to be honest, when people think about the judgment message, does it tend to be positive or negative? Negative. We're going to look at why is it negative and why is it the most powerful message we have? Why is it the most positive message we have? And why is it time for the truth about the judgment to come out? And we're going to be looking at uh, some Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. They're going to appear to contradict each other verse after verse after verse, so you have to bring your thinking cap. They don't contradict each other, but they appear to, which means we have to dig deep. Could God have written the Bible in a way that was simpler to understand? Could Jesus have told some stories that was easier to understand than he did? Yeah, but see, he gave us brain cells, and he gave us the Holy Spirit, so he actually wants us to dig deep. He wants us to have an intelligent faith, a proactive faith that's wrestled with God's word. How did our church emerge? They were praying, wrestling, and arguing with God's word. Then you know what they did? They did more praying, more wrestling with God's word, arguing, differing. You know what? We've lost that. If I spend my life spoon-feeding people, you know what they're going to do? They're going to be dependent on me. I was uh, in Bolivia at a, a mission training center down there by a guy named Dr. Kim and his wife Anita. Wonderful, they're training 50 people in two-year cycles. They send them out to be uh, church planners. Wonderful. And one girl said, going through this particular presentation, she said, this is so hard, I don't like this. You know why? Because no one ever taught her to think before. She's been spoon-fed. And you learn something from spoon-feeding, about 10% of what God wants. You get that 10%. By the end of it, she said, I'm so glad I hung in there. I'll never forget this. You know why? Because she had to work for it. She had to work for it. She had to think about scripture that appears to contradict itself. Peter said Jesus said some things that were hard. Jesus said some things that were really hard to understand. We don't have time for that, but he did. So, and then tomorrow, we're going to be talking about, I'm working on a Bible study series where we integrate discipleship and doctrinal truth where we begin with Jesus' story. Because what we can integrate Bible will lead us to multiplying disciples like Sandy and disciples baptized as missionaries 
where we are moving from information to application to transformation, where we're moving from information to application to transformation. There is a cost. I can't apologize for that cost because Jesus didn't. Okay? So we're going to be doing that, and we're going to be talking about how can we go into Jesus' story connected with our story and prophecy so the person's going to see Jesus' story and prophecy connected with their story and prophecy, and we're going to look at what is the heart issue behind the second coming rapture discussion. What's the heart issue behind the Sabbath and state of the dead? And we're going to set it up that Jesus' story ministers to the heart issue behind each of the truths we have before we actually get into the text themselves. So, the, week, so the, the goal of it is Desire of Ages, page 195. Every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God a pew warmer. Isn't that what it said? Oh, that's not what it said. No. Every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God a missionary. So the whole goal of this study will be disciples who are missionaries. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us the hidden half of the gospel, the whole gospel, that forgives us, heals us, and sets us free to move us into ministry with a testimony to receive the peace, the hope, the righteousness, the obedience of Jesus living in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Greetings, friends. Pastor Rob Bernardo here from Michigan's historic Battle Creek Tabernacle. What you've been watching is just one of the many presentations from the 2020-1888 National Conference called It's Midnight. And I would say that's a pretty appropriate title for the times in which we live, wouldn't you? You know, I think we're all looking for that fourth angel of Revelation to come down upon this dark world with his light and glory. And I believe that is going to happen soon. Think about it. Jesus' finest hour was also the hour of the power of darkness. And so it will be with his church in the last days. The greatest days for both his church and his gospel are yet to come. So keep studying, keep sharing. You'll see the web address below. There are many other presentations to watch. And so may God bless you. May you be found faithful when he comes.